Hello, welcome to the Oxford Business Podcast of the Oxford Business Community Network. We're currently at Story 94, the only podcast studio in Oxfordshire. Today, I'm really, really delighted to be joined by Dillis Guyan, and we're going to be talking about her story, but also give some really practical advice um, all around the world of sales. So, welcome, Dillis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ben. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. So, let's start. So, for the listeners who don't know you, let's start with your background, who you are and um, how you've got till today? Well, I started my career many moons ago as a financial advisor. Nine months later, promoted to a field sales manager without a team. So I had to recruit my own team, which I know will be close to your (laughs) heart. Um, And six years later, promoted to regional sales director in Oxford. So for for Thames Valley area, where I was responsible for 70 advisors, seven field sales managers and the financial services targets in all of the bank branches in my region. And I loved it with a passion. And I think that's probably one of the big things I want to share today is that whatever you are doing, you have to love it with a passion. (laughs) You know, you have to really be excited about what you're doing, because if you're not, your prospective clients won't be. Anyway, as a region, we were always in the top 5%. In 1999, we were top in the country. And that was the point that I decided that I was going to leave and set up my own consultancy. Single parent, two teenage children. Oh, my goodness. I look back now and I think, good (laughs) heavens, how did you have the courage to do that? Anyway, that was what I did and left the corporate world and into my spare bedroom, which was then an office, and literally started from scratch. I had no contacts. I had no network. I didn't use agency. And I literally put my business plan together. So how much do I need to earn? Because as a single parent, I had to keep a roof over my children's heads and all of the associated bills. Worked out who could pay and would pay And as my background was financial services, I thought, right, I'm going straight into the blue chip market of financial services companies. And so I made a list of prospective clients and literally got on the phone and, of course, had to talk to many gatekeepers. And that in itself is a skill in terms of treating your gatekeepers with the same respect as you would your decision maker. And literally in month one, I got a contract with Allied Dunbar, Zurich now, went on to work with Aviva, which was Norwich Union then, Barclays, Barclay Card, HSBC. I've travelled around the world with HSBC. And although that was my ideal client stream, financial services, when you've got that stream of ideal clients, you can then when you've got other opportunities, decide whether you're going to work with that type of company. And I got a lovely contract, which was an introduction at Thornton's Chocolates and ended up eight years of different contracts there. And that's another thing I would like to share with the listeners is go in with one thing and then identify your other opportunities. I went to the CEO and talk to him about other opportunities that I had identified, one of which was selling to corporates within Thornton's. And we took their sales from 126,000 to 1.1 million in 12 months. It was incredible. Um, So I've worked with retail, I've worked with pharmaceutical companies, historical, no, heritage sites, I think we would say, Blenheim Palace being one of them. I'm also a 
part-time tutor for Side Business School and deliver a sales program there for MBA students. And I was quite shocked. I was like, really? Don't, isn't this part of the curriculum? <laughs> <laughs> Which is very welcomed by the MBA students. And I also deliver an imposter syndrome program at Side Business School. And I'm a course director for Chartered Institute of Marketing and deliver a sales and leadership program. So started my own business back in 2000. So it's 23 years. I cannot believe it. And I love it as much now as I loved it right in the beginning. So that's me. Amazing. Amazing. I think I'm going to start in reverse order there, if that's okay, and start with with a love. There's a well-known phrase, isn't it, that we're talking about off air, is that if you love something, you never work a day in your life. What's kind of your advice around that loving what you do? You have to believe in what you're selling, whether it be a product or a service. You have to believe in that because... I always talk about the mind will move to the most dominant thought, whether it's positive or negative, and your actions will follow. So if you are not 100% believing in what you do, then it will come over in the way that you speak. And the way that I always position this with my clients is for them to think about the impact on their client, because Everything, whether it be a product or a service, should be either solving problems or helping people achieve their objectives. If you can be client-centred, customer-centred, it's then that you can see the difference that you make. And if you're listening to this and thinking, I'm not sure I'm 100%, Please go and talk to some of your clients or your customers and ask them what have been the benefits of working with you or having your product. And they will tell you if you're working in a company and you're, you, maybe you're in a sales team, go and talk to the successful people and ask them what impact they think they're having on the clients. And it will help you to reframe your thinking, which will then allow you to change your actions. But you can't change your actions without changing your thought process. Absolutely. One of the things you touched on in your introduction, which I thought was really, really interesting, is about banging the phones. And earlier on in your career, you set up your business and you got on the phone um, and won some really, really big clients. Is there still a place for cold calling? Is that still a big thing? Is that something you work with your clients on? I work differently now. Mm. I have a different process now. But in the early days, I was very naive. I didn't know. And of course, actually thinking back, there wasn't the social media that there is now. And there wasn't the opportunity to research in the way that there is now. So I didn't even think about any other option. And if I go way back to the early advisor days with Barclays, I mean, you wouldn't be allowed to do this now, but we had to put together, before we started working, we had to put together a list of 500 names from the telephone directory. (laughs) Can you imagine that now? Names, addresses, telephone numbers. And they sent out 60 from head office, 60 every week. Now, they weren't all Barclays customers. And I would make 12 calls every night. Every night. And if I didn't make 12, if I only made eight, I would carry those four over. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely committed to that activity. 
And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. And, you know, and I was calling people who were watching Coronation Street <laughs> and probably having their supper who didn't want to speak to someone about life assurance, pensions or income protection. But I learned very, very quickly Nobody's interested in that. But what they are interested in is having a financial safety net in the event of them losing their income for whatever reason, whether it be death, sickness, critical illness or retirement, then it makes a difference. And the words that you use in terms of grabbing people's attention is really important. So I did in the beginning. I talked about life assurance and pensions and I thought, no, stop. Because as a, a regional sales director and as an, a field sales manager, I used to drill into my people about being client focused. And that takes you away from being from the product. Because the biggest, not the biggest actually, but one of the issues I see is that people pay too soon. In mm. other words, they talk about product mm. too soon. Mm. And people aren't interested in your product. They're mm. interested in what your product or your service mm. will do for them. Mm. No, really, really good advice. Really good advice. Another thing that I picked up on in your introduction was around when you were looking for clients, you, you looked for clients who could could pay and would pay. And I think that's a phrase I want to build on a little bit when targeting the listeners. How important is it that you focus on those clients who who will pay will actually pay your bill because I think it's quite common for businesses to to not for that not to happen, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's critically important, and it's not just that they will pay your bill, but it's people that you want to work with mm. because you might be ethically disjointed, if that makes sense. So your values are different. Mm. And if I could tell a story that will highlight the importance of ideal client. So this is my daughter and son-in-law and they've got to build a carpentry business and they started about 15 years ago. I spoke to him about two years in. He'd been a carpenter and employed for about 11 years and decided he would set up on his own. And I spoke to him this day and said, how are things going? He said, oh, I'm sick to death. I said, why? What's wrong here? I said, you know, he said, people ask me for a quote and I spend hours putting this quote together only to find they haven't got the money. He said, there's people then who want extra jobs doing throughout the job, but they don't think they should pay for it at the end. He said, I've got late payers. He said, I've got work that I don't even enjoy because he's a real master craftsman. Mm. Harris Kite is his business, just as a name drop. Um, a real master craftsman. Mm. So, Bespoke kitchens, uh, old, old conservatories, oh, this sort of it. Very, very high end. He said, I'm doing these, in his words, pilly little jobs <laughs> that aren't even profitable. Mm. And his, his shoulders went down, his head went further and further down yeah. each time he's talking to me about it. And I said, well, is there anybody you've loved working with? And he said, oh, yes, there's this one, this one, this one, this one. I said, right, look, you and Helen come round, bring either a folder or just a list of names of those you've loved working with and that have been profitable and you've enjoyed the work. So around they came and they had six. And this is what I would recommend yeah. people do, by the way, is take six of your best mm. uh, uh, clients that you love working with. So we sat down with, with Helen and Drew and I said, right, I want us to, to look at these and profile them and work out the commonalities mm. from, between all of these best customers that you've got. Yeah. And it turned out they were all over 40, all professional, 
all earning like 100,000 plus, 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 all work he absolutely loved, all people he loved working with, same values, all profitable. They Mm. all gave him repeat business and they were all keen to give him referral business. Mm. They all lived in a 20-mile radius of where we live here in in Whitney in Oxfordshire. They live in North Leigh. All in those affluent Cotswold villages. Lovely. Right? So people who've got some income, they are still spending. Mm. Right? So anyway, we this was years ago. So I said, now we need to find them. You know, how do we get your message out mm. to them? And I said, what do they read? And they, they read the Cotswold Times or something. Yeah. You know, the glossy, I can't remember yeah. what, what it's called. The pretty called. magazine. The pretty Cotswold mag- Living, is it? Or have yes, I made that up? Maybe. Yes, yes, something <laughs> like that. And it's got all the top-end curtains, top-end kitchens, yes. top-end bathrooms. They put an ad in there. They also, uh, these people in the Cotswold villages, received the Postcode Pigeon. Yeah. Which is a free magazine full of ads. And Helen put a half-page Actually, I think it was a third page right in the middle, coloured. Nice. And so the other thing I said is you ask for referrals Mm. from your existing clients because they will refer you to the similar type of client can pay and will pay. And I said, the other thing I would like you to think about is find someone who has a a similar client base to you, Mm. but you're not in competition with. Mm. He said, I've got just the people. And he had two architects. So no competition. So he developed a really close relationship with Mm. these people and they refer business to him. And I said to him, if you are going to do this and you're going to develop this relationship, then your work has to be absolutely top end Mm. because it reflects on them because they've referred you. So they, they spent their time getting their message out Mm. to the people in those Cotswold villages through these magazines. And he developed the relationship with these two architects. His business, it has just, it it bears no relationship Mm. to where it was. He's now got a team of lads, he's got vans, and he has just finished a £350,000 project, which ended up a £405,000 project alongside a £250,000. And his aim is to to buy some land and, and develop. That's the power of ideal client, because mm. if you're marketing to everybody, you're marketing to no one because mm. your message is too generic. One of the other things we talked about when we were looking at these six and commonalities and, and so on and identifying them and saying, right, here's your ideal client mm. profile. I said, right, I'd like you to get into the shoes mm. and think about what are they concerned about mm. before they hire you? Mm. And it was things like reliability, constant communication, so no surprises Mm. at the end of the job, consideration of the rest of their home, Mm. the best materials Mm. to suit their budget. Mm. Not the best, 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 best ever, the best to fit their budget. Mm. And there was another couple I just can't remember at the moment. And so what Helen did is she put together what she called her value letter. Now, when have you ever had a value letter from an electrician, a plumber, a builder, or anyone of that nature? 
But she put these six things with a description, a small paragraph under each one, and that goes out with every quote, even now. Mm. Now, I'm not asking people to consider doing that, but what I am asking them to do is consider their value proposition. So what are the problems that your ideal client has now and what's the impact and a guesstimate of the financial impact and the benefits of change? And that allows you then to put your marketing messages together and craft your questions when you have your face-to-face conversation. Really, really good advice. I think it's the thing that was most fascinating about that story for me is as you were talking, I was putting my head in the head of the end customer. And actually, you would buy, wouldn't you? You would. If you received that, you genuinely would buy. That comes nicely on to the next thing that I'm, I'm really, really keen to, to talk about is that difference between selling and enabling the customer to buy. Can you build on that analogy a little mm, bit? I love that <laughs> phrase. I love it. Enabling the customer to buy. Professional selling, and it's a million miles away from sleazy, pushy, nasty sales tactics, Really good professional selling is about taking your prospective client from a position of interest Mm. where from your marketing messages, they put their hand up and said, I'd like to know more to a position where they want to buy from you Mm. because you have asked them questions Mm. and you're taking them on that journey and finding out where they are now. You know, so a full kind of description of where they are now without mm. your product or service mm. and then where they would like to be ideally. Mm. All right. And get them to paint that picture of where they would like to be ideally because psychologically it takes them to that place. It's not for you to tell them where they want to be. You don't know where they want to be. And then it's very easy to say, so if that's where you would like to be, and this is where you are now, what are the challenges that might stop you getting there? Mm. And every time someone gives you a challenge, or I'll use the word problem, you ask what the impact of it is. Because again, that's where that deep psychological change happens because people are going, right, I knew I had a problem, but I've never really verbalised the impact of it. And then you ask the financial impact because nobody will spend £50,000, £5,000, whatever it is, if they think they've got a £50 problem or a £5 problem. They won't. That's your biggest tipping point. So it's where are you now? Where do you want to be ideally? Mm. What are the challenges that might stop you getting there? And then ask the impact of that challenge and the Mm. financial impact and then the benefits of change. And then you can put your solution in because then it's very relevant. Obviously, there's some other questions you can ask during that conversation. Like if you do nothing, what might happen? Mm. You know, what changes do you think need to take place to enable you to achieve your objective? So, I mean, there's a a big piece to this, but that's just giving you kind of an outline. But once you've got all of that information and Mm. you've taken notes, by the way, then recap and just say, so what I'm hearing is or what you've said to me is A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, whatever. Is that right? Is there anything else? Mm. And I'll say, no, that's everything. Or yes, actually, I didn't tell you about. Mm. And then it's saying, right. What we can do is, and then you put your solution in. Absolutely. 
in it in terms. I always use that the lovely little framework of feature advantage benefit, mm. and then you are going to use their words. Mm. So here's what we can do for you. Sales training course, right? Give all the details around that feature bit. So I give mm. all the details of what mm. that would be. And then the benefit, the advantage, I would refer back to the challenges they had given me and the impact and the benefits. I would refer to the benefits of change, all the words they've given me. Absolutely. So it dovetails in. It's not just here's what I would say to everybody. It's got to be relevant to them. Mm, mm, no, really, really good advice. Um Dillis, I'm really keen to bring the conversation towards the small independent business. So I know something I see so, so regularly. And to be fair, in the past, I've seen it in, in my own recruitment business, particularly, is you're a owner managed business, you're the entrepreneur, and people want to buy from you. But with my recruitment business, I regularly see businesses looking to hire their first salesperson and that transition when actually people want the business owner, but the salesperson. What would be the advice under that umbrella? And what would be, I guess, the process from not just training the salesperson to be able to sell on behalf of the business, but also to be able to train the client to say it's actually okay to be sold to or to buy from Fred as opposed to owner, founder, manager, etc., etc. I've just taken a deep breath, Ben, <laughs> like this. <gasps> oh. <laughs> because this is what I see so many, many, many times. Mm. First of all, oh, there's so much I can talk about here. But first of all, many businesses will hire a salesperson mm. who they think have the ability to mm. do the job. Mm. I have seen few businesses, even big corporates, who really give their salespeople professional, ongoing, mm. I'll stress that, ongoing sales training. Mm. And what happens is that people will, because I'll just go back a step, nobody gets up in the morning mm. and deliberately says, I'm going to go to work, do a bad job and get hit with a stick by my manager, I metaphorically love speaking. Love that phrase. Then They don't. So let's say they've been in a company as a salesperson. One of your smaller businesses has, is growing a bit and needs a salesperson. So they hire someone who they think has got the sales ability. Mm. Now, that salesperson, as a salesperson, will give the very, very best of themselves at interview. Mm. They'll be given a target. And then there's disappointment often. I, I, there was some research from Miller Hyman. And the figures have gone up, but this was what they were saying three years ago. 18.6% of salespeople leave their organization every year, large mm. and small organizations. And it takes 10 and a half months to get a new salesperson up and running and fully effective. Wow. Now, that is a massive hit on businesses mm. in terms of the cost of recruiting and re-recruiting mm. and re-recruiting. The number of clients I talk to initially and just business people who tell me they've got this attrition rate. Mm. So you've got this situation where a, a new salesperson's been hired. The business thinks they've got the experience, so mm. they don't give them a lot of sales mm. training. They might give them a day. You know, there's this forgetting curve. I've forgotten the name of the person who researched this. But you've practically or virtually forgotten everything within six days. Mm. 
So a one day training is not sufficient. Mm. It absolutely isn't. So my advice, please get some professional sales training for your people, not just a day out with someone mm. or not just thinking, oh, well, being a salesperson somewhere else, they must be professional and make it ongoing. Mm. When I do my work with my clients, I have pre-work. So uh, I'm looking at what the situation is, where the strengths are, where the, mm. the, the areas for development are, so that the training I put together is mm. relevant. I will deliver the training. And then the follow up is the most important part. So I do refreshers. Mm. Um, I do group coaching. Mm. I do one to one coaching where it's required. And I do what I call IDS mm. as a group. Identify what the challenge is, mm. discuss it and then solve it. So it's always looking at options. This works great in a bigger group. But a one day training, a 90 minute seminar is not going to do it. And this is one of the biggest challenges in business in big and small that I am seeing myself. And I'm also reading in research is talent retention mm. because the training's not happening. I do leadership training as well. Mm. So if you're training a salesperson or team, the leaders need to be trained so mm. that they can embed what those salespeople have learned or leaders leading a non-sales team. Mm. They still need to know, yeah. you know, what the team have learned so that they can help embed it along with the interventions that I mm. put in place. So you've got this really strong, well-oiled wheel where everything's running smoothly and they're getting the results that, that they want. So I think I've answered that for you. The thing I thought was most fascinating is my own work. One of the things I most commonly see when we get calls um, and we speak to candidates all the time who have had a really successful career in sales and then got their promotion to be a manager and within three, six, nine months, they leave the organization. And the reason they leave the organization is because they've been a really good salesperson, but they haven't had that training to become the manager. And then actually nobody wants to take the demotion back down, do they? And actually what that organization has lost is a really good person that deserved the promotion. The organization lost, the candidates lost, all because um, of a lack of training. So I can completely relate to that. Can I add to that? Please ben? do. I've taken another breath, or another one of these sort of, oh, right? Because the skills that leaders require are completely different to Absolutely. those of a salesperson, completely. It is so unfair to put someone into a leadership position without giving them the leadership training. Oh my gosh, I am so passionate about this. I'm passionate about the sales, right? Because I know how that changes their clients' lives. But I, I am so passionate about sales, uh, the leaders being adequately armed with the skills they need to develop the people. And there is a big difference between management and leadership. Management is just making sure tasks are completed, not always right first time. I run leadership programs and I ask, always ask the question, right, so who here always gets the job done right first time mm. by every member of their team? Nobody has ever, yeah. I'm really mean this, yeah. no one has ever put their hand up, mm. ever. That is awful. 
So a great leader is there to inspire and lead mm. and have the people follow, but also they need to train the people. Mm. Then they need to develop the people. Mm. And the de development, I always talk about coaching mm. the people and, and really instilling. I used to talk about even back in my Barclays days, I remember saying, what could be? What could we achieve? It wasn't like here's our yeah. targets. It's like, what could we achieve? Mm. So it's about inspiring and motivating, mm. but really training your people. And I learned this from my husband, actually, EDI. He was in the Marines for years and they had to get the job done right first time. So yeah. it was explanation, demonstration, imitation. Absolutely. And when I do this with, with teams of leaders, I ask them to draw a square, a triangle in the mm. middle and a circle on each corner. And then if we're doing it online, they all have to hold it up to their camera. If we're doing live, they all have to show each other. And there isn't one that's the same. Mm. And they are all a million miles from mine. So I hold up what I wanted them to do. And I said, if I had wanted you to do this, which on the surface of it sounds like a very easy task, what should I have done to enable you to do it right first time? And they said, well, you should have explained it better. And then maybe you should have shown us the picture. <laughs> I said, exactly that. Explanation, demonstration, imitation. Exactly. They can try it. But there is a follow on from that is you don't just leave it at that. You then what I do, what I call the thermometer test mm. so that you are getting your thermometer out and checking in. This is not and I will repeat is not micromanagement. Mm. This is just checking to see that they're OK. Do they need mm. any further support? Mm. Did they fully understand what they were to do? And if they need extra training, then EDI a section of it yes. or do they need some coaching mm. and when you do your explanation give them a checklist or mm. get them to write a checklist at home on my computer I've got a folder with processes in mm. because I've got a chap who does some tech stuff for me and if he was off for whatever reason or left me yeah I wouldn't have a clue so mm. I've asked him to do a process map for mm. me. It's mm. only steps. You know, let's not make this sound too complicated. <laughs> it's steps. And I've got that in my file. And I've got that for a number of things. Now, if you are training someone and you're doing the explanation, print it out and give them the sheet. And, you know, and I remember years ago, working with this team of leaders and I asked them the question, do you always get the job done right first time? And there was this lady, she was big in voice, big in stature. It nearly knocked me backwards a yard, right? And she went, no, I don't. And she leant forward across the desk. She said, so I'll tell them again. And they still don't do it right. So she said, I'll tell them again. And if I have to tell them again, I get really angry. I can imagine. She was like right across the desk. And I went, oh, right. This was a number of years ago. And it was in the day of acetate slides. Can yeah. you remember the acetate? Yeah. And I thought, what can I do? Like on the spot, I was thinking, what can I do? Anyway, this was a, a three or four day program. Yeah. And, I, and I had at the end of that day, I was going to show them a slide with 12 steps of what they had to do mm. for the next day. So I put this slide up. I read it. 
I said, now I'd like you to read it. Put your hand up when you've finished. So I know you've all read it. So you've heard it from me. You've read it yourself. I took it off. I said, now I'd like you to write those 12 steps. And this woman, she went, she actually lay over the table on her hands. And she said, I feel ashamed. Hmm. I feel ashamed. How can I expect my team members to remember the multiple steps of what I'm expecting them to do when I only tell them once, twice or three times? How on earth can they remember that? She said, this has been the biggest aha moment of my life. Wow. So please, EDI in your training, explain it, give them a checklist or get them to write the steps themselves. You show them and then let them try it. And if you've got somebody who has been a salesperson, for example, somewhere else, and you think, oh, that seems a bit patronising doing this, then just observe, see mm. where they are and where they need some EDI. Exactly. And then follow through, get your thermometer out, metaphorically speaking, check in and see how they're doing. This doesn't mean checking every step of what they do in terms of micromanagement. It's just checking in, seeing how they're getting on, what challenges they might have. And then do you need to EDI or do you coach? Amazing. Amazing. No, really, really good advice. We have got to the end of the podcast. You've given such insight. One of the things you said off air is that you genuinely were here to give good insight to the listeners and you've done exactly that. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Oxford Business Podcast of the Oxford Business Community Network at the wonderful podcast studio of Story 94 here in Oxford. Thank you to Story 94 for creating it. And we look forward to you listening to another episode next month. Thank you so much.